So it is my great uh, pleasure and privilege to introduce Doug Fountain. Uh, great to have you here today, Doug. Glad you could spend the time for us to talk about this incredibly important subject. Uh, health system strengthening, or HSS as it's known, is the banner and rally cry for building resilience and improving timely access to quality health services for those most in need. And in this webinar, Doug's gonna review for us definitions of HSS. He's gonna outline critical processes used by donors, partners, and authorities, build a shared vision of success based on impact and scale. And he'll identify how Christians offer unique value to HSS efforts based, uh, uh, based on our, our scale, our unique voice for holistic health and our ability to integrate the church and community within the work of health facilities. And he's gonna draw also from Nehemiah's experience drawing uh, Rebuilding Jerusalem for, for inspiration. So Doug, Doug Fountain is executive director for CCIH, that's Christian Connections for International Health. It's a global network which ICMDA is really proud to be uh, a, a part of and to benefit from. And they work to advance health and wholeness. And previously, Doug was Vice President for Strategy and Impact for Medical Teams International. He served admission at Uganda Christian University. He helped, uh, uh, this is amazing, helped a reforestation program with the Tanzanian Anglican Church. He conducted research in mental health and substance abuse services in the US and he was an early advisor to the Christian Journal for Global Health, so a man of many, many talents. Doug holds an MPA from the University of North Carolina and a BS in political science and economics from the University of Oregon. He lives in Annapolis, Maryland with his wife. Doug, you're very welcome today and we really look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, um, uh, Dr. Saunders. I really do appreciate that, and it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, I, I will say that the title of the session is Strengthening Health Systems, uh, but we probably should have said uh, Strengthening Health Systems in Low-Middle-Income Countries, because the experience that I'm going to draw from and the examples that I will use are mostly uh, going to be based on, on that context. So let me, let me uh, just outline for you uh, that health system strengthening is, is the banner and rally cry for building resilient quality health services. Like many rally cries though, it means both everything and nothing. Donors and partners, authorities, implementers in the church and communities all look very differently at this. They all see something different in, in it. And there are decades uh, and hundreds and, and or even thousands of books and articles written on this vast subject. Any one article or any one research study may be useful for one facet of this immense body of work. What I want to do today is to provide a big picture context for all of that work, highlighting the roles for Christians and Christian institutions. We want to build a shared vision of success and understand how, as Christians, we add value to, the critical, uh, to a critical global priority. Our objectives for today are to define the terms provide an overview of health system strengthening building blocks, tools and approaches, and Christian health assets, and consider concrete ways the Christians and Christian organizations contribute to this. Uh, just to briefly mention, CCIH is a global network, as, as Dr. Saunders said, 
with over 100 organizations and hundreds of individual members who seek to advance health and wholeness from a Christian perspective. Over half of our members are based in uh, low and middle income countries, and we work on capacity building, fellowship networking, and advocacy. One of the initiatives that we run is something that is called 30 by 30. This is to demonstrate the power of Christian organizations to strengthen 30 health systems by 2030. This is part of the experience that I'm going to draw from in this talk today. The goals of 30 by 30 is to increase global attention to the work of faith-based health services, work alongside faith-based health services to increase funding and improve policies, and to gather evidence of stronger health systems for faith-based organizations. Already over 30 organizations, again, that number 30, uh, over 30 organizations have committed to improve one or more health systems, and you can just see a, a short list to the right of many of those. We've learned a lot in running this program for two years. The third year of commitments is currently open, and we'll later send a link uh, for that. That's part of the experience that, that we will draw from. Um, but I also find a lot of inspiration from the book of Nehemiah. And I won't go back to, uh, to quoting verses and take you through a deep Bible study about that. But in brief, if you remember, Nehemiah helped rebuild Jerusalem uh, after uh, the, the period of exile. And the lessons of how Nehemiah went about that uh, are, are still alive and, and relevant today. I often consider Nehemiah the patron saint of planning. Uh, he's also the patron saint for community mobilization. What he did is he sensed a call, a need to rebuild something that was broken. He engaged in advocacy for authority and resources. He surveyed the needs and the issues, and then he mobilized people. He got people together to actually work on parts of the building the walls of the, the city, and through that helped restore the city. And the lessons, we can bring about change. We can work on the walls in front of us. We know that the walls are only one part of bringing the city together. We also know one of the lessons is not everybody is a Nehemiah. Not all of us are going to be Nehemiah. Some of us will simply have our part of rebuilding the walls to do. But also not every family lived adjacent to the wall. He mobilized people to provide food and to provide other resources for those who were doing the building. So there are many parts of building the city and Nehemiah provides a great example. I take a lot of encouragement from that. Okay, let's dive into some of the material. Definitions, we should be all clear and use common definitions. Health, those services that promote the integration of physical, emotional, social and spiritual well-being, not the absence of disease. System, okay, many of us think about providing clinical services or maybe we, we uh, provide uh, community services or we do some other part of working in health, but the system is all of those things working together as part of a mechanism or an interconnecting network. And examples of that are connected programs or facilities, linked education that supports facilities and NGOs, or this phrase that I love, in many places in the world where there is a clinic, a church-run clinic, a Christian clinic, there's usually also a church and a school close by. 
So how can they all work together? And then of course, in a number of countries, there are robust networks like the Christian health associations. The system, the essence of the system is the parts moving and working together. So then strengthening, okay, strengthening that word is endurance, flexibility, the ability to lift a weight. But if we put it in terms of health system strengthening, helping make it more resilient, adaptive, and effective. So putting all of those words together, we're talking today about those processes, those activities that build resilience and make systems adaptive and effective for better health services. One more piece of context for this. When I think about the, 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 the health asset landscape, when I, when I think about the system, we should be clear that we're talking about health facilities, community health programs, and where they exist, church-run or, or congregational health programs. But we should also be mindful that as Christians working in this space, there are also health networks, international support partners like NGOs or mission agencies, drug supply organizations that provide necessary medicines, and then critically, the health worker training institutions in many countries. We think of the Christian health landscape as the Christian version of those, but some of you on this webinar work in secular environments. That's fine. The same elements of the system still apply, just not necessarily with a Christian background. So that's just to set the context of when we talk about systems and the pieces that move together in a system. So the first of the three areas to focus when we think of health system strengthening are on the building blocks. Health systems have these common features, they're building blocks uh, that relate to their external environment. So the World Health Organization provided very good guidance for us on, I think now 12, 12 or so years ago, uh, in what has become known as the six building blocks or the six pillars of health system strengthening. Service delivery, that's everything from facilities to the clinical management protocols to quality improvement strategies. Health workforce, these are the pre-service and in-service training as well as systemic efforts to plan around insufficiency or shortages in health work. Information, this is collecting and using the data, emerging standards for electronic records, uh, in some contexts, they use this, uh, the, the, the data system DHIS2 to collect and share information. Medical products, vaccines, and technologies. Financing. Financing now includes not only direct funding from governments or, or pay by, by patients, but also the advent of universal health coverage, which we'll talk about more. And finally, leadership and governance, assuring that accountable leadership are able to effectively run programs while reducing corruption and waste. Those are the six building blocks. And they say, World Health Organization says, if you're going to strengthen health systems, you have to work on all of those. The challenge is that those six building blocks leave out a few key parts of the environment. So we have added in three other components, community governance and outreach, that's the voice of communities and their leaders, including clergy and church leaders who help with planning and decision-making. On the right side, policy and political context. 
recognition that funding for services uh, and conducive policies requires advocacy. And finally, the operating environment, the advent of networks or corporate or donor uh, involvement that are all feeding into these health systems. These are important things for us to, to, uh, to be aware of. And I'm going to skip this next slide, uh, but we might come back to that later. That's to set the context for uh, the building blocks. Now we have to think about how do we actually make things better? What can we actually do to make things better? And using the right approaches and tools is what we're talking about next. So we talk about that in three steps, agree and align, assess specific areas, and then making improvements. There is, like I said at the beginning, vast amounts of research and, and huge numbers of, of initiatives that are going on on almost every part of these things that we're talking about. So I'm just trying to set the context and set the framework to help explain what strengthening means. And the first thing that frankly, I think is often skipped over is agreeing on the results that we desire. Think of the terms like access and coverage, quality of care, safety, improved health, of course, social and financial risk protection. We can add in these words, efficiency at scale, resiliency and sustainability. What is it that we are trying to accomplish by strengthening health systems? That could be a, a secular health system, a national health system. It could be a Christian health system. Then once you have that agreement, how do you align around that in terms of the, the responsibility, the authority, and the finance? How do you bring people together to focus on that? Using data to determine your area of focus, paying attention to global best practices, and then emphasizing the role of local decision makers and, and, uh, and driving authority and accountability to the local level. Those are critical steps in agreement and alignment for health system change. That's part one, but then part two, there's great energy right now being invested by the donor community in this. We see it a lot in USAID, we see it in, in other donor programs, and they ask basically two questions. How well are networks doing at sharing information, promoting learning, and creating efficiency? How well are organizations doing in terms of being stable? How well organized and governed are they? How well staffed are they? Are they adapting to times of change in their environment? One of the things that is very popular right now, you'll see a lot in, in the literature are these organization capacity assessments. These are tools that you can apply to any clinic, community-based program, mission agency, uh, any, anything, uh, basically any organization. And CCIH has actually developed one uh, based on a review of a series of about 10 different tools and it's available on our website. That's also a link that we will provide later uh, after this, this webinar. But these organization capacity assessments usually focus on multiple 
areas like governance, leadership, policies, workforce, you see the list down there. Each one is scored based on clear criteria. So if you say you're working on governance, do you have a board? If you don't have a board, you're at level zero. But if you have a board, but it meets only once a year, that might be a level one. But if you have a board that meets regularly, that might be a level three. And you see it moves up. And then if you have a high functioning board that meets regularly and, and reviews strategy and holds the leaders to account, that might be a level five. And when you do that rating, then you can then add up and see where you have strengths and weaknesses. That is very helpful. You can apply that, that methodology to organizations or to networks, and it's very helpful to target areas for growth and improvement. It's critical, though, to choose whether to implement that self-administered or to rely on consultants. Donors love to work with consultants. Organizations, though, if you're doing it on your own, you might not be able to, to or not want to pay for that all the time. Either way, we find that it's the process that really makes a difference. So that was the second step of the, of the, process, of the approaches and tools. The third step is actually making the improvements. And this is where the donor community often lets us down because they will invest in the problem set or the diagnosis. And imagine if you are a clinician and you diagnose a health problem and then say, okay, you have this disease, but then you don't have a treatment plan you don't have any, any su support or, or resources for the, the, the patient, you're not actually helping. So how do we bring those resources together? Helping create the action plan, find the coaching or consultation to help make improvements, reading up on materials, and then reviewing progress, actually measuring change that you're able to make. That is the hard part now of making these improvements. And we, along with a number of other organizations, are trying to create that reference base of information so that organizations and networks can, can make these improvements. Okay, so I've now gone through the building blocks and I've gone through three steps of how to make things work better. We're going to talk now about leveraging the Christian assets. What is it that we bring together because of our common values or our shared approaches. Christians and Christian institutions are uniquely positioned to improve health systems, but we must work together to do that. We have to remember that no one part of the system can work in isolation from the rest. No one part of the system can work in isolation from the rest. And as a reminder, we talked about these different components of health systems the community-based programs and the health facilities and the health worker training programs. How could you have well-functioning health facilities if you don't have adequate health worker training programs? How could you have well-functioning health facilities uh, or health programs without adequate medicines and supplies? All of the pieces have to work together. So we're going to now take a look at several very specific and tangible areas that we can apply to make concrete improvements in health systems. We need to look to the future and be aware of what are the biggest gaps, 
the important issues and trends, and then the implications for Christians and Christian institutions. And you can see on the left, we're going to talk briefly about each of these building blocks as we, as we do that. Services. I will say this is based on, on, uh, on not only our research, uh, our work on our 30 by 30 health systems initiative uh, and countless meetings and, and advocacy events and, and all where we are listening and, and this is our analysis. I'm very sure that if we put this out to all of the ICMDA members, you would add things and, and, and even introduce other bigger gaps that you experience. That's okay. What I want to do is illustrate what we see is a big gap, what we see is a most important issue or trend, and then draw out the implications. So first, services. Many health systems are calibrated around communicable illnesses, malaria, TB, HIV, and often those respond to donor or global priorities, but they may not be set based on local experience or local priorities. They may or may not. We know that there is a shift to non-communicable disease. Take COVID out for a minute. And remember the path that we were on two years ago was in the shift to non-communicable disease to recognize diabetes and hypertension and cancers and mental illness as their role in driving disease burden. We also know that unmet surgical demand is a crisis in many parts of the world. These are issues and trends that we have to deal with. So as Christians working together, how can we pull together to revisit our strategic health priorities and communities, working on joint prevention and care programs with the local church, community health workers, and facilities? This one is one where we have meetings with corporations that are interested in advancing care for non-communicable disease, and they are selecting faith-based organizations for this simple reason, that they have the access to influence behavior, but they also have the faith-based health services to drive better clinical programs. So that's a great example of a partnership where data and, and, uh, and experience and, and all multiple parts of the health system all come together to focus on this challenge. That's services. That's one tangible area. Workforce. This is, this is really a, a, a surprise to, to me, and I think many people, the level of underinvestment in pre-service training that actually means there are very few workers and very few advanced educators. When we look at, at statistics on nursing uh, nurses per 100,000 population or, or physicians or dentists per 100,000 population. Those numbers always feel low in low and middle income countries, but there's no commensurate investment in improving that. Along with that then are strains on the workforce, poor wages, difficulty, staffing rural health services. And the implication then is as Christians, we can bring together stronger health training institutions. We can actually align them around national priorities and help make those, those health worker training institutions high quality and more robust. Frankly, 
many donors and many governments don't even know that there are Christian health training institutions. Sometimes they think only of the government-run health training institutions. So even we have a role to advocate and make people aware of that. Finance. The biggest issues that we see are inadequate government spending generally and the sidelining of faith-based organizations specifically. But the biggest trend that we see, the very exciting trend that we see is the growth in universal health coverage, creating locally sustainable financing. And there are several examples rising from church networks. For instance, Ghana's national health insurance system grew out of the Christian Health Association of Ghana with their own self-insured system and it became the national system. Right now in Uganda, the Kido program is starting in the Anglican church and is growing nationwide. These are examples of where the church is starting to work on something important like, like universal health coverage. It's going to take a lot of work for the Christians working in health to align to these programs to actually think about being able to bill for care to a government agency or to an insurance provider. It's going to take some recalibration, retooling for some health facilities to be able to do that. Medicines, uh, tremendous gaps in uh, inconsistent supplies, fragmented supply chains, uh, and now, one of the things that we've really become more aware of thanks to COVID is that some people distrust medicines and vaccines. Maybe they lack sufficient information about them. And so how, is we, how can we as Christians come alongside and help make a difference in that? Christian drug supply organizations need to use up-to-date warehousing methods. They need, we need to have health services upgrade their supply chain planning to assure consistent supply and attention to demand generation. That's one facet of this complex area of health system strengthening just on medicines. Information, there's an underrepresentation of many faith-based and community health initiatives. Uh, that, by the way, uh, we've been working together with a series of, of other organizations, including uh, ICMDA as one of the founding members to create a new Christian health asset mapping consortium that is trying to help address gaps in information about faith-based health initiatives. So we're going to work on, on, on making people more aware and, and making sure that they're represented in, uh, in data systems, but also one of the most important trends that we see is adaptive learning. This is very popular with the donor community right now. It used to be that they would say, we want you to have data to show that you're effective or data for, for accountability. But now the focus is on data for learning. There's a recognition that data must produce change. And we have to work together with the local workforce to assure that they have the equipment, and the skills to participate in that. When we did our foundational research for the 30 by 30 health systems initiative, we visited several countries, spoke with countless leaders, and it was very surprising that out of all of these blocks that we are focusing, all of these building blocks, 
This one actually was considered the top. And here was the language that one person used. You could give $2 million to a program, but if they don't have effective leadership or quality governance, that money could be wasted. It could, it could, be, it could disappear. It could be completely wasted. So the investment needs to be made in leadership and governance. The gap is that there's limited leadership development training. And what is there is sometimes is bureaucratic or procedural. Like I mentioned, we flagged that in our research. There are rapid advances happening in healthcare. One of the trends that we see is the, the, the push, whether it's COVID or new treatment methodologies or, or new uh, advances in, in health, all of those require that health programs and health leaders be up to date. But often the boards that govern those health institutions do not have the needed expertise to help guide the organizations. So there's a disconnect between the boards and the need for effective health leadership. And this is a major area for Christian health partners to come alongside. Anybody who has worked effectively with a board can share experience with others who may be struggling. Second to last, community engagement. See, significant gap. One of the things that amazes me is that health facilities and community health programs often do not talk to each other, or there's not stronger community governance or involvement in the affairs of a health facility, for example. And we see it even in our own network. You'll see the, the, the frankly, I know I'm speaking to ICMDA, but you'll see the doctors and the dentists speak about direct health services within a health facility, but then you've got the public health world working in communities and they ought to be connecting. They ought to be sharing information and co-planning for the improvement of health in their communities, but they just don't speak to each other. So how can we bridge that? Pandemics, and then we see these other things happening, like right now, frankly, with the, the war in Ukraine, we see population migrations that are creating significant demands on local health services. Surges in healthcare from pandemics and migration are straining these health services. So now is the time to actually bring better local governance, involve churches and other community leaders with health facilities that are seeking partnerships. The last point here then is Advocacy is our biggest gap. Many organizations are either not engaged or their top, top leaders are not well prepared to be effective advocates. Most important then is to keep, to recognize that there's a heightened focus on emerging threats and challenges, okay? That things are starting to, to change now in this world where with climate change, with with uh, population migrations, there's new, with, with COVID, there's new opportunities and new need to have dialogue between health leaders and government leaders, especially when it's the faith community, they have a unique voice. So we can help standardize that dialogue. We can help improve the tools the Christian leaders and institutions use and can rely on to have effective dialogue with the governments. Final thought for, for you. I encourage you all not to hide our candle under the bushel. 
We are the hands and feet of Jesus and continuing his healing ministry. And the four things I would say, we reach the last mile, even if that is just the person next door who cannot access services or advocate for themselves. We draw legitimacy by the depth of contact in the communities and the length of history of our shared work. Christians serve the underserved, leveraging immense scope. Faith-based Christian organizations and Christian health workers are everywhere, immense scope, who also bring this vision of holistic health, but they also bring ready-made global partnerships. We are unique by bringing all of those together, these global partnerships, this vision for holistic health, and our scale. That is really what is exciting. We have a vision for holistic health. That is really what is exciting to me about continuing this work. So how do we strengthen health systems? Focus on the relevant priority building blocks, use the right tools and approaches to actually make things better and leverage all of our Christian health assets. So with that, I thank you. Uh, Peter, back over to you. Thanks very much, Doug. Uh, and that's an amazing overview uh, and of all the, the building blocks and the ways forward. What we've heard, it, there's just so much there in terms of resource and what we're involved in. Now, we've got a time of question and answer now. So uh, first of all, we've got a question from uh, one of our ICMDA board members, Doug, from, from Howard Lyons, who has a background in healthcare management. And Howard is saying, in your opinion, Doug, which lower or middle income country or countries have the most effective health system in terms of quality, access, outcomes, and cost? And what impacts do Christians have in that country, if any? Now, I, I realize this, this is a difficult and a sensitive question, but could you perhaps give us um, one or two best practice examples that would inspire us and show us how, uh, how what could be achieved if these things really do work together? Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate the question. And I, I will say I was interacting with somebody um, uh, yesterday at USAID. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the tool. Uh, they've been working with the WHO on a tool that actually rates countries on these very factors. And they, they have standard metrics for accessibility and quality and um, coverage and, and there's about six or seven different domains and I'm really forgetting the name of that tool. I'll try to look that, look that up. Uh, and, and that is an attempt to try to create a, a, system, a, a systemic answer to the question. Uh, I'm not prepared to, to say what one or, or two I would hold out. What I, what I would say and where I think there's a lot of energy being focused right now is countries where the Christian health organizations and providers have banded together in an association are very strong. We see, and I'll highlight a few examples just from Sub-Saharan Africa and one, uh, one from India as well. Uh, the, the Christian health associations of Ghana or Zambia or Kenya uh, or the Christian Social Service Commission of Tanzania, places like that where the associations represent hundreds of health facilities. They have hundreds or even thousands of, of staff working across all of these, these health facilities. They're helping to buy 
supplies on scale. They are helping to, uh, to bring uh, systemic answers, uh, such as systemic data solutions. Uh, that's very exciting to see what, what they're able to do. I mentioned India as another example, the, the Christian Medical Association of India is, is doing much of the same thing. And some of these associations like CMAI uh, in, in India have the professionals like ICMDA uh, members, but they also have the health facilities. Others are focused more on the health facilities. And, and either way, I find it very, um, very exciting to see what these networks are, are doing. So now they are focal points for investments and, and research. So we're seeing the donor community now paying more attention. Uh, I note uh, that, that uh, uh, for instance, the Uganda Protestant Medical Bureau in, in Uganda uh, has had investments uh, to work with, with religious leaders on HIV. And so these kind of networks become very powerful. Thank you. Uh, next question from Eric Mongay. Eric is the leader of our Papua New Guinea uh, uh, national movement, and he's uh, a family doctor, well, he's, he can do just about everything working in a district hospital. But, but Eric is asking, in terms of strengthening the health systems, which structural flow is implementation is best? Is it, is it bottom up or top, top down uh, planning? Or does it depend on the situation? Great question. Maybe I, I would answer the question going back to, to Nehemiah and, and say the part of the wall uh, that you lived adjacent to was the part that you were given to work on. So if you are working at the local level, then your part of it is to work from bottom up. But if your part of the work is to work with governments, then your part might be to work from top down. I don't think the one versus the other is going to be the right, uh, the right way to look at it. That said, um, uh, I think we're often concerned when we see policies uh, get created that are not based on a strong understanding of what the local context is. So when top-down decisions are made based on other factors than the reality on the ground, they may be destined for failure. So I, I, I wish that there was stronger uh, connection between the, the top and the, the, the quote top and bottom levels. I think this is also an issue in, in the global community now as we talk about uh, localization uh, or decolonizing health. Uh, right now, I think a number of the, the, the global actors think about the sustainable development goals or they think about global priorities and they then drive investments to the partners that can implement their programs in key countries. But we're seeing now a recognition that they need to start by planning with the local providers and local networks. That's an example where localization emphasizes the role of the local partners, but within a country that, that may not feel like really getting to the bottom up. It feels, it may feel if you're working in that country, like you're still going to the government. So I, I still want there to be listening happening at the local level. Doug, you, and giving your overview of the eight uh, areas of, of leveraging Christian assets, uh, and I was struck by the fact that you, you paused on leadership and said that that was really the most critical of all of those. If you didn't have strong leadership and good leadership training, you could almost forget about everything else. There's a question here saying, what, what use 
do you make of change champions uh, implementing health system strengthening action programs? And how do you select the people uh, to be those, those champions? I guess that was a, another task, wasn't it, that confronted Nehemiah to, to get the right people in the right places to achieve what he couldn't do alone. Well said, yeah, well said. You know, the, the champions for change, do, do you select them or do you identify them? Because sometimes the champions are already the ones that are vocal and already have people that are listening to their ideas and their influence. And so you, you want to find the ones that, that are effective and leading to positive change and give them uh, a, a a larger platform to speak from. The, the connection, uh, though, back to leadership and governance, uh, the struggle that I think some organizations have, and now I'm talking about in especially very local organizations or maybe a, a local uh, Christian hospital, for example, uh, might be that the, that the board came together because of the church connections that own it not because of the technical expertise of the people present on the board. And we hear that sort of story a lot. And that I'm not saying the church leaders can't help run health institutions effectively, but we have to look for diversity of skill and diversity of, of ability on the boards to, to make sure that they are uh, able to be effective. Sometimes that means finding the vocal uh, leader who, who can, can provide the necessary advice or guidance uh, to the organization. You commented about uh, the, the importance of governance and, and your 10-point assessment plan. Uh, governance, you, you used as an example, uh, zero is no board at all. <laughs> Five, I think it was, a high-functioning one. Uh, how, does, how does one help a board to grow and develop to be high-functioning and effective because I think the problem you've described there with people put on perhaps because of their, their status rather than necessarily what they have to bring to it is quite a widespread one. How does how does one grow and evolve and train a board in order that it's operating at a high level? Uh, it's a great question uh, and, and it's one that I don't think that we've got a, a very clear answer on. I, I I, I won't. I won't speak. I know you have board members on on this call, so I, I won't ask you questions. But but even for our organization, uh, who do we recruit to be on the board, and and are we thinking about ten years, and are we thinking about diversity, and diversity not just in terms of of the the, the demographics of the people on the board or the the uh, geographic context in which they work, but the diversity of skills. Like, do they have? Do we have a board that has program expertise, financial expertise, legal expertise, and a savvy business sense? There's nothing quite like having a few board members who can look at, at the opportunities that the organization faces and say, okay, if we make this decision, it will help stabilize us and, and even grow our portfolio. If we make that decision, they could lead to ruin. And they have a savvy uh, business uh, instinct around that takes all of those. There's a, a lot written about uh, board development. One of the challenges that we see, uh, we have a whole leadership and governance working group addressing this. There's, very, there's a lot written about board development in the North American and European context and very little written 
from the low and middle income country contexts. So we know that authority structures and patterns of decision-making may be different in some countries that render our experience from the US or uh, um, throughout Europe as less relevant than uh, might be. So I, I, I think the book still needs to be written about that. Okay, well, there's a challenge perhaps for someone listening today. Might you be that, that author? A question from Cynthia Butland here. Do, do you think the preference of donors for funding short-term projects only for a, a few years undermines long-term development plans needed for solid change to occur? I guess it's it's the same problem it is that we have with governments thinking just toward the next election and what they can do to make sure they're still there long-term planning and attracting funding. I, 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 I like to, to compare sometimes to private industry that sometimes is more driven by quarterly stock uh, reports and can they maximize their finances with a quarterly stock report? So they often aren't thinking much beyond you know, one or two quarters out and their, their decision-making, they, they will change in an instant based on maximizing that. That's my worst case scenario. Uh, on a call the other day uh, with the, the head of, of uh, Catholic Relief Services, he made an interesting comment that, that he thinks now, whenever they get ready to work in a place, they think in terms of a 12-year commitment. I don't know where the number 12 came from, but, but it's a substantial commitment. If they, if they invest in an area or a program, they are committing the time and the talent to be there for 12 years. And that's, that's, a, that's a healthy time for a partner to work in a, in a place. Mm. Uh, uh, I'm very fond of, of reviews happening every few years, but some of the complex things that we do together, some of these complex health systems changes, it will take sometimes decades to see things turn. I'll tell you one, one brief story of something that I'm uh, very uh, excited about in Uganda. Um, I was able to work with uh, at Uganda Christian University on helping start a nursing program that started in 2005 or six. And the, the plan that the organizers for that program had was they would, at the time there were only a few bachelors of nursing programs. And they said, we will, we will start the bachelors program here. We will then make sure that we get them a master's degree and the real stars of those will go out and get their PhDs. And when they've got their PhDs, they will continue and teach and advance the entire nursing sector in Uganda. Now, roll forward 2005 or so to 2022, you've now seen the fruits of that. You've seen the master's program started graduating students in 2010 or 11. Several of them have moved into senior positions of leadership. They now have several of them who've completed their PhDs in nursing and are able to go back and run and teach nursing programs. So you have significantly increased the capacity of nursing education, but that's a long time. That, that takes a real commitment to, to, to build that. And it, it took some international partnerships and uh, and there, there would have been no sense to say, well, this initiative, we're, we're going to, to improve nursing in four years or 12 years. It, it just couldn't work that way. 
So the long-term commitment pays off. I've never heard of 12 years, but I guess it's a good biblical number, isn't it, 12? Maybe. But we've got uh, two quite similar questions here, which I'll, I'll join together. One, one from Alex Bolek, who's our East Africa Regional Secretary based in South Sudan, and the other from Alexander Saul, who's uh, based in Angola. And they're both asking the same question in a sense, how can we, and one that's particularly relevant at the moment as we see two million refugees crossing the border into countries neighboring Ukraine. But um, how do we strengthen or maintain health systems in vastly unstable situations like that? So Alexander is asking with respect to refugee populations uh, Alex is asking with respect to uh, conflict or, or crisis as a result of it. Yeah. Do well, the same principles apply? I, I think you, th there's a couple of stages of that. And, and, um, and I think of, I think of the, the uh, conflict and, and crisis in, in three phases or three buckets, if you will. First are the, the people in the place of crisis. So in Ukraine right now, you know, who, who can't access healthcare because their hospitals are being bombed. So that's, that's a level of crisis, or maybe it's in, uh, in South Sudan, you mentioned, you know, if, uh, if people have been, are in, uh, directly in harm's way, how are you serving those people? Second, people have now moved either in country or to another country. They're internally displaced or they're now refugee. How are you caring for those displaced people and then the third part of that is the local health system that is going to experience a surge in demand or a surge in, in patient care because of the influx of, of people. And you've got to pay attention to all three of those. Right now, we're looking at, at the refugee situation in Europe, counting, uh, thinking of what's going to happen in Moldova as an example. Uh, you put one or two or three million refugees in Moldova, you might provide some primary care directly to refugees, but they're going to end up in the Moldovan clinics and hospitals. So how do you assure that those hospitals are ready? So I want to go back to the, to the question, how are you thinking about health system strengthening? Part of it is, part of the, the language needs to be understanding that there's fragility, understanding that there will be surges in demand. What are you going to do? What's your plan when you have a sudden doubling of, of, of patient uh, volume? Uh, be intentional in the planning. And that's a good example where advocacy is helpful uh, for the, the health facilities and the ministries of health to meet with members of parliament and, and think through what it's going to take to adequately serve people. Uganda has, has done uh, a lot. I, I, I was able to work at medical teams and, and watch very closely how the government helped make sure that, that refugee health services were very high quality so that their need or demand on local health facilities was in a way the spillover or maybe the primary and secondary care levels were provided for the, the refugees directly in settlements but then they were capacitating healthcare in other health facilities when it was needed. And so there was planning and very intentional thought that went into that. 
yeah, um, those, are, uh, those we, are huge risks. Yeah, no, thanks very much. That We've virtually run out of time now, um, but I just wanted to ask you one more question, and that's just to give you an opportunity. Dave Moore is asking a British doctor working again in Papua New Guinea, can you give us your elevator speech about CCIH? What, what, what is it that you gave a bit of an introduction at the beginning, but what, what is it that CCIH uniquely does in contributing to health system strengthening around the world? We two, two different pillars of our approach. One is to strengthen the capacity of local organizations. And the second is to engage faith leaders as partners in addressing complex health problems. So uh, working with local organizations, as a member network, we are not an implementer, but we work with many, with dozens, frankly, of local organizations and provide tools and, and support for them to actually improve their capacity. We've been able to provide grants uh, through, uh, through USAID and, uh, and other, other sources that are able to help support them. Uh, and, and, and frankly, measurable changes in, in capacity uh, is, is a key area of focus for us. Engaging faith leaders is more of a, a, a realization that we're doing it, but we hadn't put language around that. Uh, we started doing that during HIV, uh, the upsurge the of, of HIV, but also with family planning and mobilizing faith communities and, and clergy in particular to be well-informed about, about what family planning is and, and how to advocate and how to promote that. Not to use them, I want to be careful about that, but to, to find shared language and a shared agenda. So that sort of thinking rolls over now to vaccine hesitancy, uh, rolls over to a number of other areas. How can we engage the, the church and uh, the clergy and, and church leaders and parachurch leaders in actually driving for better health. That's what we do. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've been listening to Doug Fountain, the director of CCIH, Christian Connections and International Health, addressing the issue of health system strengthening. Let me really encourage you to make use of this video in your national organizations uh, and your national settings as well. It will be there as a resource for you going on into the future. So thank you uh, so much, Doug, for your time and, uh, and all, that you, all that you do. We're greatly inspired by the way you brought so many people together so effectively. Thanks to all of you. God bless you all. And we look forward to seeing you again soon on ICDM webinars. Thank you. And thank you for the time. And thank you, everybody.